0: Matter 2.0 and uh, our program tonight, we're calling for those who have lost hope. Those who have lost hope. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we love you and need you. Seek you in all things. Pray your spirit to be with us. Help us to be better Christians and to live our life as, uh, as committed Christians, not in the religious sense, but from the heart, in the spirit, uh, with our hands, with our mouths, and that we let you guide, and that we abide in you, and you uh, fill us with the fruits of love. We pray that this uh, program will equip us to do that and to understand how the religion plays out in our lives today. So be with us now and help uh, all those who are participating. In Jesus' name, amen. James White, February 13th, right here in the church studio. If you're going to attend, get here early. Uh, the show is going to be from 8 p.m. to 11, three hours. We'll have refreshments. Uh, we'll have books. We'll have uh, coffee breaks. And we're going to have a good dialogue, discussion, not a debate. Uh, the word debate has been thrown around quite a bit. That's what James White does. He's a, he's a debater, and he's very good at it. Uh, but I'm, I'm not going to be debating it, uh, debating him point for point. Mark Pizant, who's hosted other things for us, who's been the MC, he's just going to set the time frames. I'm gonna talk, James will talk, we're gonna talk, audience can talk, and uh, we're gonna discuss some things. Now, people have said, what's the topic? Apparently, most people believe that it's going to be uh, Trinity, and uh, we will certainly talk about the Trinity, but uh, I'm not going to be uh, confined to one single topic uh, because there's a lot of things that I think need to be mentioned. And so, of, of course, we'll talk about the Trinity, and, and uh, that's one of uh, James White's specialties, an expert in, really. Uh, but we'll be talking about a number of other uh, things. So, show up here or watch, tune in. Uh, that's Mountain Time, 8 p.m., February 13th. Also, check out our new website, hotm.tv. From there, you can access... These shows 2.0, 1.0, check those out because they're all now in an order. You can even search the shows. Type in profit and all shows that have the word profit in it are going to come up. It's really a remarkable uh, system that Michael has uh, set up for us there. So you just go in, just look at the red tabs. They'll tell you, you, all you got to do is click on a red tab and it'll take you to whatever Part of the ministry you want to get to. And we're going to be adding to that as we go with other para ministries that uh, we're working with and who we support. So we kicked off 2.0 with a number of really bold observances and claims. Among them, I said, without qualification, and, and this is really an interesting phrase, I said that we here at campus have the best approach to Christianity on the face of the earth. And uh, bottom line, that is one bold statement. But listen to the wording very carefully, uh, because I constructed it purposely in that way. We have the best approach to Christianity on the face of the earth today. That statement admits that Christianity exists. We didn't create it. It exists. And uh, it exists without our views, our Anything, it exists, right? And it is the thing that we are approaching. We have the best approach to Christianity writ large. Uh, Next, we said that our approach uh, is the best, but it doesn't mean we created the approach. It doesn't mean other people don't have the approach. And it doesn't mean it hasn't been used over the ages. It just means we have the best approach. And if other people have it too, they have the best approach. So it isn't like we're the only ones. We didn't say we're the only ones who have the approach. We just said we have the best approach. And if someone else has it, fine, they can say the same thing. So uh, notice too that we said we have the best approach on the face of the earth today. And, and, and so this is not to say that our approach today would have been the best approach in the apostolic church. It wouldn't have been. In fact, it would have been the worst approach in the apostolic church because they had a different reason for doing what they did. So if we had taken our approach to the faith and thrown it back 2,000 years to the apostolic church, it would have been the worst approach on the face of the earth talking about our day and time relative to what the Bible says, we say it is the best approach, hands down. One final reminder, the term approach is exactly that. Uh, It's a worldview. It's a perspective. It's the way to see the faith. We don't have a corner on it. You might wonder why our building, if this is the case, uh, we have the best approach to Christianity on the face of the whole wide world today, how come our building isn't overflowing with people? How come we have, you know, on a good Sunday between two services, 75 maximum, you know? And this leads me to a final point about the approach. Because it's the best, on the face of the earth does not mean people will want it. That, those are two very different things. Uh, you would think, well, because it's the best, everybody would want it. Sort of like Jesus himself when he was on the earth. He had the best approach, the very best, but not that many people really wanted it. They had other things that they wanted. So for Jews, Jesus was a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, his message was foolishness. Uh, He was the best, but relatively speaking, he was rejected by by most in his day. So today, the best approach on the face of the earth... uh, can be seen as way too much for some people, or it can be seen as not nearly enough for others. When it comes to religion, and uh, when I, some people can't handle the freedom of what we say is the best approach on the face of the earth, they can't handle the personal responsibility that our approach gives to the individual. Um, See, the approach endorses and encourages ultimate personal freedom an individual can have in their own life through Christ. And for some, that is way too much to handle. They Some want to be told what to believe, how to believe it, what to do, how to do it. And so that broad brush of freedom is too much. So they go to a church where the freedom is narrowed way down. You need to see God in this way, a trinity. You need to pay 10% of your income. You need to sign this document that says you will obey these rules. You will participate in this event. And people say, ah, I feel better with God when I get those restrictions on my life. Our approach will not serve those who want these prisons. It won't at all. And so that's one reason they aren't here. Additionally, uh, the approach refuses to play church and especially refuses to create projects and things and activities in Jesus' name. So we aren't going to have here save the starving uh, Himalayan folk and join this, our sister church in the Himalayas. And we're not going to have the Christmas box feel good during Christmas because you put some household items that are going to go to a child in Nairobi who will shake it and feel good about uh, himself at Christmas time. And uh, we leave Christianity to the individual. So we do what we do here and then they leave and it lets the individual decide how to spend their time during the week, how to spend their money, how to, who to associate with, and, and all that other stuff. Those who love churching, they just love a churching, uh, will not appreciate the best approach to the faith, what we call the best approach. So they find places that will serve them and their needs for fellowship and friendship and fun, midweek studies, uh, hikes, going to Israel, you name it. There's churches there who will provide it. And and that's what you want, that's fine. But here's the deal. If someone is looking to first have an approach to God, Because in our approach, we say you don't have to have one. You don't have to have an approach at all. You can never step foot in a church. You can go and commune with God in the mountains with your Bible, never step foot in a church, and that's fine. That is something that is congruent with our approach. You're free to do that, you see. So first, if you want an approach, then that's the first thing you have to say. Then this approach might help you experience more freedom in Christ than you've ever experienced before. Uh, You might grow more in your faith and love than you ever have before, and you might become less fearful of religious things that are are imposed upon you in other places than you ever have before. Uh, And you might understand the Word of God better than you ever have before. That's why we say ours is the best approach, and it's relative to personal freedom, faith and love, less fear, greater knowledge— That is what it comes with campus. Nothing else, right? So I don't know of a better approach substantiated by what Scripture focuses on than that. Uh, But I guess the real question is who will want it? And the approach after the birth and life and death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior is based on the biblical fact that Jesus and his apostles all promised... To the people in their day, this approach is based off the fact that Jesus and his apostles promised to the the people in their day, that generation, that he was coming back for them to take his church. And the apostles were reiterating in letters and spoken word, trust this. He's coming back for us to save us. Any scholar of the New Testament, I don't care what their view is about it, they will all admit the apostles believed that he was coming back. And what I say to that is they were not wrong. What they say is they believed it, but they were just mis- mistaken. So let me say this in another way. If this is understood and believed that the apostles and Jesus promised that he was coming back for them in that age, then all the factors of our approach are really easy to understand. The scripture tells us that upon Jesus' return for his church, that everything we read about is done. It's fulfilled. It's over. All the material elements of the New Testament church are done when Jesus comes back. That is why our approach is so deconstructed and free, because there's no need for everything else that churches will bring in. When a believer receives this information into their soul, something I have observed happens that is unfortunate with believers. Their main response to this news, once it's come into their brain and they see it, is they step back and they say, where's my hope? What's left for us? If all that you're saying is true, and they check Scripture, and they find out, yes, this is true, many people say, I'm just chopped liver in God's eyes. We don't matter. Everything that we read about in the, in the Old and New Testament was for them. And the Messiah returned for them and took his little church then and took it up and saved it from destruction. That happened in Jerusalem for them and for them and for them. And, for them, and it all applies to them. So what are we? Nothing. And what's left? Now I want you to know I have over the course of the last few years watched this in people. We have a CPA, our Derek went and saw him today, I think, and he Derek started sharing with him about this view, and his immediate response was Where's the hope? Where's the hope? Where's the hope in Jesus coming back? And saving us and and redeeming us and stopping this world from spinning and all the things that come with that belief. Most become dejected. And they fail to see the need for anything else relative to the faith. They can almost become uh, indifferent to all things related to Christianity. They just say, well, all right, it's done. And so, uh, no need to get together, no need to study the scripture, it's all fulfilled. No need to share Jesus, no need to learn and grow, just kind of, it's done. Now let me pause here. If you do not believe this, and I preach it, if you don't come to see it and believe it, and you believe Jesus is coming back to take you, part of the bride, the church, from this earth, you might as well stop watching Heart of the Matter forevermore. Because everything is couched in the fact that the Bible teaches clearly. He taught and his apostles taught he was coming back, and he did. This is the message For those who have come to see and believe that the book we read in the Bible is fulfilled, it's called fulfilled eschatology. It's it's done, and I'm not alone. I didn't create this. This has been around. Many people believe it, and it's a growing movement as people's eyes open to the fact of what the Bible is talking about. So I want to try to explain to you, though, tonight why continuing in the Word and continuing to share Jesus as led by the Spirit, and continuing to teach each other the things that are in the Word, is vitally important to believers today, and has been important since the destruction of the age in 70 AD. So, let's go to the board. And uh, I teach, I believe, even though everything is done, that in light of the fact that there are reasons to continue to grow, reasons to be in the Word. But I have to admit, my reasons are not really well established in Scripture. Uh, so, which admittedly makes them more speculative than I, would like to be, than, I, than I would like to believe, but I have to believe it. Because this is just conjecture on my part, really, as to why we would study the Scripture now. If he came back and took his church and fulfilled everything that was written in there so I have brothers and sisters who do not agree and 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 they don't see value in my reasons but I want to try to get you to see the hope that is in being a Christian and getting together and studying the word and learning even though you understand that all of it was to them materially in that day and age so The first question, how does or could the scripture apply to us today if it has all been fulfilled by Christ back in that day? I maintain that the Bible teaches all readers and hearers spiritual principles, spiritual principles that are just as viable to every human today as those principles were to those people living in that age. Do I have anything to really support that? I don't. There's not a passage in the New Testament that says, and all of these things are for everybody on the, for the rest of the human race forever and ever. It's not there. All the epistles were written to them. Everything was for them. So I don't have a passage, a magic passage, that supports what I'm telling you. Um, But this debatable view leads us to a number of questions that need to be answered. Like, how can we tell that this view you propose is true? Sean, and what exactly are the eternal principles that are in scripture that we're supposed to glean from and who gets to decide what those are? And how do, we, how do you know which ones are eternal principles and how you know which ones which aren't? For instance, what it says there about women not speaking in the church, is that an eternal principle? Who gets to decide? Versus uh, a principle like loving each other. Is loving each other just a principle that was applicable then, that's not applicable now, but today we should not let women speak? You know, how do you know is the question. So the subject is really tricky when we think about it. On the one hand, many people conclude that the Bible is telling us everything must be done exactly as it was done then. We do not have any evidence for that. In fact, we have evidence to the contrary, great evidence to the contrary of that. Uh, so, while I completely agree that everything within it is complete, I could not disagree more that it, uh, when people say there's no purpose to the Bible, to studying it, to getting together, reading it, to being Christians, applying the principles that are in the Bible today. So, let me again uh, use the rest of the time to make my case. One, the material contents of the Bible are no longer applicable. To the world, and they haven't been since 70 AD. Two, the Bible itself, my proposition to you, has tremendous spiritual application to all believers, and it is one of the greatest gifts that God has bestowed upon us. When people say, what are we, just chop liver? That Bible was given to us. That Bible, that New Testament wasn't given to them. They didn't have a collection. They didn't open it up and read it together. They had some letters here and there. They had apostolic leadership then. They had the spirit in abundance then. They didn't have the New Testament. So they went by something completely different. But when it was gathered and collected and and decided upon and provided for us, especially since the the advent of the printing press, that's a gift from God to us to understand what he did do with them materially. And, And the gift that, Jesus is to us today, and why it is there in a historical setting, you see? So that is my first point. The Bible that we have today was not available to the apostolic church. Um, It was available later in what I say is the greatest gift, besides the Spirit, today, because the Son came and was for them, but the Spirit came after, who seek Him in spirit and truth. It's one of the greatest gifts we've got. In harmony with this, we can no longer say, what about us? Are we just chopped liver? Where's our hope? Where's our guidance? Where's our apostles? We have that word. All right. Of course, you know, I have opinions about our abuse of that word and are using it as a tool to hurt each other with. That was never its intended purpose, but uh, I think it's a living, wonderful gift to us now. Everything is complete materially, uh, and God has certainly gifted seekers of truth with his written word, but those who take it and abuse others with it, dividing people up and trying to play church with its contents, which has happened tens to hundreds of thousands of times over the past 2,000 years. Men have been doing this and doing this and doing this to no avail. God knew this would be the case. He knew this was going to happen. And since everything is done materially, the seekers and lovers of the truth take that Bible and use it rightly. And that's one of the beauties of it. Those who are his take it, read it, they learn spiritually, they grow personally, and they become better Christians, more loving people because of that. People who use it wrongly are outside of that picture. It's a gift given, and God says, what will you do with it? Some people take it. And, and abuse it and abuse others with it, others take it, and it lets them humble them and break them and bring them closer to God by the Spirit. So that is, uh, that's one reason he gave us that gift. I think it sorts the, the wheat and the tares, and we become legalists, or we become lovers. We become abiders of the law that we impose on everybody else using its contents, or we read it, and we just rejoice in what the Spirit teaches us by and through its contents, Get it? Just because there are those who abuse the gift and abuse it badly does not devalue the gift to those who love the Word of God. One more point on this. The major proof passage that religionists use today to prove that the Bible's contents are applicable now as they were then is one, and I've covered this before recently, 2 Timothy 3.16 in the King James says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And today, the religionists and the zealots take the Bible and they quote that passage and say, see, that book is as much applicable to us today, all scripture. But the interesting thing, as we pointed out a few weeks ago, is that the King James is a really bad translation of that passage. And that, in effect, our best scholars say that passage actually reads... Any words that are inspired of God are profitable for doctrine, uh, uh, for reproof, for correction. So, in other words, all scripture, and this is scripture, every word of it is God's, turns to be in any words that are God's are good for uh, profitable. So that allows us by the Spirit to read and see what was of God, what was of men, And this will frighten everybody. Oh, no, 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 no. Then you're getting away. Now, you can do that by the Spirit. You can see what is of God and written to us for our benefit. And you can see what doesn't have a place. And maybe even what was added by Paul or Peter or others. And there's plenty of passages in the Scripture in the New Testament that are not inspired of God to pass down to us today. Plenty of them. And you can see that if you're a reasonable soul. By the Spirit of God. So I think that's interesting uh, caveat relative to that passage. Point number two. So my first point is the Bible was written to them materially, and it is for us spiritually. Second point, the Bible says that the word of God is purposeful. Uh, it was written to us, remember? It was written to them, but it's for us, and it's purposeful. What, where do I get that? For the word of God, whatever words in the Bible are the word of God, is quick, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing us under the soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. When a believer who's seeking God in spirit and truth reads a passage by the spirit, that word of God does exactly what is said right there. It says, wow, wow, wow it cuts you up. It says, all those soulish ideas I had in my heart, shut, gone. Here's the spirit, boom, gone. It's a discerner of the contents of the heart. Now, that is an applicable rule of thumb, so to speak, that was given to them, but that passage right there, I'll bet my life on it, that that passage right there is God speaking. And he says, when I speak, it's my word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And let me tell you something, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cut you up like ginsu knives, and it is going to leave the things about me in your mind, and it's going to cut the dross of you out. That's what the word of God does. Jeremiah says, his word is fire, and the people are wood. So that, that is one of the part of the gifts of the Word of God for us now. Point number three. Because everything's fulfilled, I suggest that we begin to start to say what are biblical policies and practices that are no longer applicable and what are biblical principles. Policies, practices, not necessary, principles, all right? And as an example, uh, I'm going to get to the board and I'm going to quickly give you an example of what some policies and practices are that are talked about in scripture that that there's no reason for them in our lives anymore. And then I'm going to go over here and I'm going to talk about some of the eternal principles that any reasonable Christian can see when you read a story that teaches this versus stories that teach these. There's a difference in how they would apply to us if Jesus has come back. All right. So, uh, Sorry for the small space, first one is genealogy. Don't eat them, forget them. Forget endless genealogies, it even says it to them. Circumcision, I mean even to discuss it, I don't even know how to spell it. (laughs) It, it, Forget it, your boy has it, he has it, he's an ant heater or he's a helmet head, it's one of the two, it's over. We don't even have to talk about it. It doesn't matter to God, right? Here's what, here's one people think water baptism policies and practices has nothing to do with salvation by Christ Jesus shed blood by faith, nothing. So you get sprinkled. You don't get sprinkled. Don't you don't, you don't get baptized. You do you and God. It's all fulfilled. Okay. Lane on of hands. Oh, here's one demons. And devils, there's a whole study as to why that is done for. Don't need to worry about it. Look, you just have to ask yourself, did Jesus have the victory over all things when he came? Did he or didn't he? If you say he did, stop talking about this. It's, It's no relevance to you. It's done. He either had the victory. If he didn't, and Satan is still taking over souls, captive, leading them to hell, and they are there for eternity, and you believe that, and Jesus didn't have the victory, then keep talking about demons and devils. But if you think he came and he had the victory, then you need to put this one away. It's a, it's okay, uh, binding things through prayer, tithes, you know, my talk on that one, done. Uh, attempts, attempts to heal. God is either going to heal or he's not. You pray, he's going to heal him. You pray, he doesn't heal him. It's up to God. It's not your faith or lack of it. It's not all the things that were going on. There. It's fulfilled. God's will is done. If someone lives, they live. If they don't, they don't. We praise God in the meantime. We can get away from all the policies and practices of trying to heal people, even though it's never going to happen. Uh, organizational development. Uh, and we're talking about how the churches are structured, whether you're an episcopos, or whether you're uh, uh, the council of the people or whether you're this or elders-led or deacon-led, all that stuff, forget about it. Done. Gender differentiations. You know, saying women can't do this, only men can do that. Done. In Christ Jesus, there's no male, no female, the no bond, no free. No black nor white, no races, all of it done, if you believe that. <sighs> public tongues, public expression of tongues, unnecessary if it's fulfilled, in my estimation. We could talk about it. Apostles, they had their time and place, they did it. Of course, people are sent like apostles are. Threats of hell. Threats of second coming. I just watched a show the other day, and someone said the line, you are slower than Jesus' second coming. (laughs) That's what they said. Why? Because it's true. It is that we've been preaching it and talking about it, and if you just read the word, it shows you. He said he was coming in 40 years. He did. The apostles said it, you know. Uh, I think excommunication is the stupidest thing. Uh, you know, in a, in a religious sense, I see no need for it. Everybody knows the people sitting in the pews here in the church today are sinful. You start excommunicating one, that's a slippery slope, you might as well, everybody just might as well walk out and leave the church empty. Of course, we don't play by that. We, too, we have all sorts of reasons why we're going to still tell people to leave the church. It's amazing uh, the piety that we have. No, you know, we are all sinful, we are led by the Spirit, and we just, by his love teaches us to say no. It teaches us to overcome uh, the sin. Uh, we don't have to be worried about physical salvation. And what I mean by that is that we don't have to worry about Jesus coming and us being raptured and us being ready for his rapture. But what we do need to be worried about is when you die, and you never know when that's going to happen, and being ready to be taken up to him. And to receive your body and to be judged and all that. That's, that's still in play. That's a principle that's still in play. We could add that over here. But in terms of, you better be ready for the physical, that's done if he came, right? And we need to, uh, I think, and I could give this contextually, diversity of gifts. Yeah, it's, I mean, that we have them and we express them, but they aren't the same thing as Jesus having his church prepared by the believers then to come and take it and how they would play then versus how they play now. The body is a body of believers. Uh, Religious restrictions of every kind. Old Testament repentance models. If it's done, it's done. All that stuff. Uh, Religious authority of every kind. Religious judgments of every kind. uh, Affiliation with the nation of Israel. Let me tell you something. The nation of Israel was done for at 70 A.D., done for. Study the book of Revelation and read the historical, secular accounts about what happened to them in 70 AD. Done. They're over. This is not anti-Semitic. But there's no Jew, in my opinion. There's no Gentile. We're all, ch- we're all creations of God seeking to be children. And if you're a Jew, it doesn't matter. You've got to come to God the same way, by Christ. There's no nation that we, we still play to politically. It's done. They're over. In fact, I don't think they even know who's who over there. And there's a, great, I, there's a great thing going around that says no one even knows who a real Jew is anymore because of what happened in 70 AD. All right, so I think you may disagree or agree with those. I'm not going to write them over here, but spiritual regeneration is a spiritual principle that I think happens, and I'll testify it happened to me. That is a reality Uh, The Beatitudes are a reality. The Sermon on the Mount, the principles of the Sermon on the Mount. Humility is a spiritual principle. If you're reading the New Testament and the principle is humility, that applies. If the way to be humble is to wear and rent your clothes, I don't think it does. You see how you would do it? Uh, Kindness, peacemaking, forgiveness, long-suffering, trusting God in all things. Constant communication with God, selflessness, love for all people, spirit mind over fleshly mind, spiritual principles, abiding in the New Testament, proper application of parables, taking up your personal metonymical cross, and walking with Christ, dying daily to Christ, spiritual principles, all there, not literal, spiritual Bearing our personal burdens, involvement with other people as Christ, personal development towards Christ, suffering the death of the flesh, generosity, living a life by the Spirit, personal faith, faith by hearing. Let me add one more because this leads us into the final point. Over here, let me tell you something that I think is a policy and practice that is gone because Christ came the Great Commission. Why do I say that? Because the onus for everyone to constantly be going about sharing Jesus out on the street, saying he's coming, get ready, you need to hear about him, takes on a completely different complexion here back in their their day because he was coming to us today. It's a different thing. The onus isn't to have a church that's based off the Great Commission, and you're sending people out constantly. Now, understand, on the other side, a spiritual principle definitely is planting. That means sharing Jesus. And watering, that means teaching Jesus. These two are principles that will always abide. But it has to happen by the Spirit. It doesn't happen because Jesus told his specially trained apostles now go you into all the world which is really go into all the land that's what he said to them you can't take that and now and assign it to us as missionary efforts but you can say everyone should by the spirit be listening to what god has and when you get on that bus and you're sitting next to someone and the spirit says share jesus you do and if the spirit says don't bother you don't and if you say, well, should I not bother? And the Spirit says, don't bother. It's okay. You can relax on this one. You, you, you don't fall under the burden of this. You see, there's a difference. But when you take the Bible and you sign all this stuff, these policies and practices given to them, to yourself today, what you've got is religion. And you've got burden. And you've got a weight. And you've got a yoke. And you've got guilt. And for some people, you've got, I'm waving the white flag. I give up on all this. You see? So you can't mix the two, and the Spirit will tell you which. So I think we have to ask ourselves, also, this is point number four, is the purpose, I'm going to move back to Seth, is the purpose of God in the lives of humans the same today as it was back in that day? And I would have to say, absolutely, it's the same I don't think God had an intention for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and uh, John the Baptist, and Paul, and uh, Peter that was different in terms of his heart for them and what would happen with them than he does for Manny, Mo, and Jack, and Sean, and Jill, and Susan today. The the, the intent's the same. Just because everything is complete and finished on his end— on how he's brought about his salvific work on the earth, doesn't mean that it's over with his work among individuals. That is harvest and that gleaning and that planting and that watering and that sowing and reaping is all still going on. Now, can I prove that from the scripture? I can't, but I believe that. That's why we do church. That's why we teach the Bible. That's why we share Jesus by the spirit with people, because he still loves everybody today as much. It's just the Bible gave us how he saved us, what he did. If free will abides on earth among men, which I say it does because God is good, then even though everything is complete on his hand, I would say that God is still calling for all to receive him by the Spirit and to be spiritually reborn and to have Christ with them so they can walk in this life and develop relationship with him here, which is, which is a reward in and of itself. And if this is the case, then I would suggest that we have a need as a body to continually, here we go, the only thing I think gathering together is for, and we'll wrap it up with this, planting and watering. That's what it is in this world, planting and watering. That is what the, the church is about. We share Jesus And then we learn about Jesus. And both of those come by the hearing of the word. So now we see a reason why the word is important, this gift to us in our lives. And when someone hears Jesus, they grow closer to Jesus by in their faith by hearing the word. And then they go and they let the spirit hone those things and grow them and, and do all that stuff. So now we have a reason for the application. And there is hope and there is purpose. Because you want your neighbor who doesn't understand anything to have the light that you have. So, of course, God wants them to know his son. Of course, God wants to adopt them and have them become sons and daughters and children. And so we share. But just notice something. There's two things that remain for us as Christians. There's sharing and there is teaching so we can grow. The rest of the stuff that has to do with religion the weekly gatherings and all that, if they're feeding those things, fine. But if they're just stuff to play church by, or if they're just things that you're hearkening back to the policies and practices of the New Testament in order to feel like you're in harmony with what was and still should be, it's a waste. So when you look at your church, see, are we focusing on the planting of the word for people, uh, and, and preparing people, to, and are we focusing on he- teaching the word so people can grow individually? And, and that is what the focus should be. It should not be on anything else materially based. And if, if that's the model that you have, you have one of the best approaches to the faith uh, on the face of the earth. Okay, we are going to go to Keith in New Jersey on line one. Keith, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello? Keith, you're on the air, hey brother. Hey. Hey, Sean. How are you? Good. How you doing?
1: Good, good. I think you're, you're ahead on the, uh, on the radio instead of on the uh, YouTube here, so it took me by surprise. Anyways, um, so you were talking about this whole idea that the basically Christ established the church, but it only existed for really a couple of decades and then, then disappeared. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I think it's kind of kind of weird, because I'm looking back at uh, Isaiah chapter 9, and uh, I have a Hebrew here, too, as well. It says, For unto us a child has been born, a son has been given to us, and the government shall be on his shoulder. And he has called his name, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. To the increase of his government and of peace there is no end, on the throne of David and on his kingdom, to establish it, to support it, in judgment and in righteousness, henceforth, forever and ever. And the word there for government is himasra. The word for kingdom is lacto." The government is used twice there. He doesn't use the word kingdom, he uses the word government.
0: Don't disagree with it's that it. in the least. I absolutely agree with it, Keith.
1: Okay, so where's the government? It says it'll be there forever, it'll uphold it forever.
0: It's it's a spiritual government that operates by the Spirit in the hearts of the individual. And his kingdom is made of individual people, and his kingdom is on high. The new Jerusalem is heavenly. It came down. His kingdom reigns spiritually in the hearts of people ever since the destruction of Jerusalem. His government will never end. His kingdom will be eternally based this way, and that's why I don't think there's ever going to be an end of the physical world. There's nothing in scripture that says there will be. It's going to continue to go. And there's another reason why we want to share Jesus is because you're adding more and more people to that kingdom spiritually, not materially.
1: What did did Jesus do with the kingdom in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18? I don't know. Tell me. Well, he handed the keys of the kingdom to a person, a single person, by the way. He gave authority (laughs) as rulers over the kingdom to the other apostles. But he gave the keys to the kingdom to one person. And he, uh, right there, he's he quoting from Jeremiah 22, where the, uh, the, the king, king of Israel gave the keys of the kingdom to a prime minister. The king remained the king, but the prime minister had authority over the kingdom. Okay. And Jesus basically quotes word for word there when he gives the keys to Peter.
0: Okay. So let me ask you uh, something. Uh, Let me ask you something, and this is the way I interpret, and then you clarify for me. I I believe, Keith, that when he gave those apostles who he trained firsthand and picked, who were witnesses of his life, death, and resurrection, and gave their lives for it, that Peter Uh, was the one who had the keys, and the keys do what? They open doors, they open things up. So who was the one who spoke on the day of Pentecost? It was Peter. Who was the one who took the gospel to, it wasn't Paul, to the uh, Gentiles first. It was Peter. But after doing that, once you open it up to the world, what other doors is Peter opening? And what happened to the apostolic authority?
1: Okay, you're, you're, you're putting into the word keys what you want it to mean. You have to go back to what Jesus was quoting from in the Old Testament. The word key there refers to giving authority to somebody else who was less than the king and less than the king but still had authority over the kingdom.
0: That was Peter.
1: That's, that's oh, what the word. That's what the The,
0: the authority to the, of the kingdom means. I don't think I'm reading into that. I think it's evident by what Peter did. He those two things.
1: yes, wait hold on. What? The New Testament is written in the context of the Old Testament people. I understand you have that. to know what, what the phrase, you have to know what the phrase means. You can't just read into it what you want to read into it.
0: Oh, okay, well, now you're making accusations, but let me, I, I see it in a different way. But, 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 no, 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 I'm being friendly here. Keith, I want you to tell me then what you're saying is the reality. I've told you what yeah. my reality is. You tell me what your reality is.
1: Yeah, Jesus, Jesus, the, the kingdom of Israel didn't end, okay? Okay. You look in, you look, I think it's Ephesians. You don't have to quote
0: scripture. You can just tell me. What you say? The kingdom right. of Israel did not right. end, and what Damn. does that mean?
1: Right, right. Listen, okay. So, the king, the kingdom of Israel, transformed into what we now call the church. Okay. That Jesus, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He's not the the Gentile Messiah. The kingdom of Israel didn't end. The kingdom of Israel was opened up to the Gentiles. Okay. Now the now. What we could call the the church is basically what we you could also call like a universal Judaism. It's Judaism available for everybody. Okay. And Christ took took Jew, Jewishness, so to speak, and he transformed it. He he didn't abolish it. He transformed it.
0: Okay. So okay. All of the
1: all of the sacraments of the Jewish um, rituals. All still exist as the sacraments in the New Testament. Okay. The sacraments. The only difference between the sacraments back then and the sacraments now is that the Holy Spirit now works through them, whereas okay. in the Old Testament they
0: didn't. Where are these sacraments this is in the Old
1: Testament? What's that?
0: Where are these sacraments played out today?
1: In in Christ's church that He established in the first century.
0: Which church is still that?
1: Exists. Just still exists, just as He said in Isaiah chapter nine, and that is the. One Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. Okay, and there we Jesus go. Universal. I knew
0: it was coming. It's, it's universal. It is a Catholic. It's a Catholic call. And the problem is, brother. The problem is. <laughs> I was waiting for you to get to it, man. So now this is a petition that the Catholic Church uh, has has the keys, has the authority. But my friend, let me ask you something. Would what do you c- think Dave What? What's that?
1: What do you think of Dave Burtosa? I think
0: he's a wonderful buddy, guy, right? and I love Dave. Friend, right? I, I love Dave with all my heart, and I love you. I don't care that you're a Catholic. I'm just tell, I'm uh-huh. just. I'm just asking you. Uh huh. Christ Church that you say is all these things is uh-huh. is represented by the history of the Catholic Church.
1: Yeah, most of the history you believe comes from uh, Protestant something called the the. The Black Legend, look up The Black Legend in Encyclopedia Britannica.
0: Botanica.
1: Most of the information you have from it comes from British and so, Dutch. So um, look at, you can just, Protestant.
0: Keith, look at, you can cut to the, this is called the heart of the matter. You can say that the history is not correct. That's what you can the history, say. The
1: history you believe, i called you before about this, the history you believe, 99% of it is
0: false. 99% of the yeah. history I believe about the Catholic Church is false. You sound like a Mormon, Mormon, Keith.
1: Well, here's the difference. You can do like Dave Portozovich, and you can actually go back and look into the history, and you can find out out the truth.
0: So, well, Dave is a Greek Orthodox. You're a Roman Catholic, right?
1: Yeah, the, yeah, the Greek Orthodox and the Catholics are... Basically, we're both talking about reuniting, first yeah, off. Basically, both, you,
0: guys are as di- you guys are as different as night and day. Just ask Dave Bartosz no, no, about Greek Orthodox his... Are not, Look uh, at, uh, well, Greek Orthodox are not night and day compared to Catholics. Uh, yeah,
1: night and I day. Sure. Night
0: and day. What? Just ask no, the not. Greek Orthodox what they think well, of the right? Roman Catholic Church. Ask the Greek, Greek
1: Orthodox. Or- my, 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 friend, my friend's father is a Greek Orthodox
0: priest. Yeah, and... So what's your point? My point I, know, is, I know Greek Orthodox probably better, better than you do. Okay, you do, not Keith. not radically different than Catholics. All right, Keith, you're appealing to authority. You're smarter than me. You have a greater understanding of history than me. And 99% of the things I think about Catholicism is false. But bottom line, right. Keith, if Greek Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism was right on target with each other, why would there be a difference between you? Because there's okay. a huge difference between no. you.
1: No, no. The difference between Catholics and Orthodox ultimately comes down to the extent of the bishop of rome's authority the, the greek orthodox agree Good. the pope is the first among equals and they, well, they consider it a position of honor okay they don't consider it a position of true authority all right catholics say that it's a position of true authority that's the, that's the ultimate difference
0: that's, the, that's difference. the ultimate difference well keith yep. i have i have breakfast three times a week with a catholic priest father of the largest Catholic church here in Utah, and him being a Roman Catholic, he has a very different view of what you're, of what you're saying, and I trust his view better than yours. The bottom but, you know, line you is- no, Whoa, well, no, wait, 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 Keith. The bottom line is you can be a Roman Catholic, you can be a Greek Orthodox, I don't care. All That's I'm good. saying is this is my view of things, and I have, hey, just, about... I have the right, right to share it, as much as Luther had the right to share Protestantism against the Roman Catholics.
1: Right. And I'm not talking about whether if anybody's against anybody's right or anything like that. The question is, what is historically true? What did Jesus establish?
0: And, and what Jesus established was taken and fulfilled uh, when you look at secular history compared to the events that happened in 70 AD, and it's done. You're, pro- you're just playing church as a Roman Catholic. It's just playing church. So that's my final say. You've had yours. Thanks for calling, Keith.
1: Yeah. All right. Good.
0: Bye bye. All right. Well, that was kind of fun. Got my blood going. I guess I'm getting ready. The Lord is preparing me for James White. Uh, <laughs> is uh, do we have anything else? Oh, we have uh, Mark in Canada. You got to be quick, Mark. Okay, Sean. As for our
1: conversation today. Uh, hang on one second here. I'd turn that off. As uh, per for our conversation, uh there's some things, first of all, on that list that I probably add into behind you there.
0: Yeah, like but, what?
1: Uh, um so I'm kinda you're actually swayed me a little bit here and there. I'm gonna do more searching. Good. Um but I did wanna say when you know, even though it was funny and everything um bye bye fathead does it apply now because <laughs> um it just not it doesn't make um a lot of sense if there's no hell right so how does how does that apply now
0: i don't know what you mean bye bye fathead
1: you well see? i used to say bye bye fathead. if they don't accept christ
0: oh yeah yeah well you know remember what jesus said uh what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his suke, mind, will, and emotion? So if someone, mm-hmm. if someone uh, Mark, lives their life and, and resists the calling of the Holy Spirit upon them to receive Christ, I believe that part of their soul will be bye-bye fathead still. That there will be in the presence of God a burning away, so to speak, of the dross. Uh, and, and the gold, silver, and, and, and precious gems will remain and the wood, hay, and stubble will go up. So I still think there's a bye-bye fathead factor in all of our lives probably to some extent or okay. another. Yeah.
1: Okay. Thanks, Ben. Have a good night.
0: Now that we answered the bye-bye fathead question. Thank you, Mark. God bless. Okay. Bye. Bye. And someone's just called in. Do we have any time left? About four. Four minutes. We're waiting on Wendy to stop flirting with our caller. Lusty Wendy, you're married. (laughs) Line one. one, one. Well, you made it through our screener. She's really tough. Who's this? This is Brock. How you doing, Brock?
1: Hey, Sean. Hey, Sean. Haven't seen, haven't uh, talked to you in a month now, so uh, I like what you're doing with the show, and it was a great topic tonight. I just wanted to pat uh, you on the back, and that was a great conversation with that uh, young man who was trying to pick up the keys of Peter yeah. and uh, run with that with Catholic Church. We yeah. all know about that, and everybody wants to claim keys of Peter. It helps to prove their point, but, uh, but I just want to say it sounds it was a great show tonight, Sean.
0: Thanks, Brother Brock. Is that it? What's that? Hey. That's it. it. You're the man. That's it. Thanks for the support. Love you, brother.
1: Love you, too, Sean. Talk to you later.
0: Okay, bye. Well, listen, remember, uh, James White, February 13th, uh, Brother White is, I mean, he's debated Bart Ehrman, Uh, he's debated Muslims, he debates uh, anti-Calvinists, he debates Catholics, he debates Mormons, he debates everybody. And so he's kind of Matt Slickish in the uh, fact that he knows his scripture, and he's going to bring it. And uh, some of the Protestant churches in this area are promoting this already and saying he's coming to defend the glory of the God of the Holy Trinity. Uh, That's what they actually call it, the glory of the God of the Holy Trinity. And so I I look forward to that discussion and it's going to be civil and we have uh, everything in place. So we hope you'll join us here. If you don't drive down, uh, join us here live on uh, February 13th, 8 o'clock to 11, and watch this unfold. I'm going to say something now. It's going to be deemed a little bit, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, not humble. But I think what is going to happen that night, not because I'm involved and not because James is involved, but representationally, I think it is perhaps one of the most important things that is going to happen in Christianity uh, in this era. It's one of the most important discussions that are going to happen because what we have is a man who represents all of church orthodoxy, the patristic fathers, church history, relying on tradition and uh, taking the word and using it to create his points versus another man who says it's done. You don't have the right to do it. Forget about it. It's over. Jesus is Lord. Let's let all of this die and let the faith go from your objective demands on people to a subjective experience for the individual. We'll see you next week, Karen Heart of the Matter.